Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. Wait, you're back? I am. I just <laughs> just <laughs> ran in the door then. It's my Australian hat on and I have flip-flops and I'm all ready, to, or thongs as we call them. Is that a kangaroo in your pocket or you just have Oh yeah, it? no, I've, I've, I was saving one from the fires. So Oof. I'm finally back after some personal delays, but uh, we're all good now. They let me in the country so we uh, we can continue on. On that, let's get into today's topic. Knowing your worth and fighting for what you are owed as an assistant. What do you bring to the table as a support staff? How do you ensure that you are being compensated fairly for your duties? What are ways of getting the most out of every opportunity, even if you are getting screwed? Let's find out today. All right, before we get too deep into the woods, let's reset the reason why we are making an episode all about knowing your worth as an assistant. If you've been paying any attention to Twitter or the trades lately, you will have heard of Pay Up Hollywood. Now, Pay Up Hollywood is a movement started by Liz Elper, friend of the podcast, Deidre Mangan, and a number of others who have rallied together under this banner to essentially address the issue in Hollywood, which is that assistants are being underpaid and overworked. And it's been a systemic thing for a number of years. We thought it was important to discuss this topic on our podcast because any TV writer who wants to break into Hollywood is almost inevitably going to end up doing these kind of industry jobs as assistant or writer's room support staff, that sort of thing. So it's important to be prepared for the practical and financial realities that that entails and know how to put yourself in the best position to be able to succeed. Absolutely. And that's why we really wanted to do an episode about our own experiences, our own tools, our own advice on arming yourself in ways of putting yourself forward, of knowing your worth, of negotiating, everything you should be expecting and are owed as an assistant. Even though you may be on the bottom of the ladder, that doesn't mean you have no rights. That doesn't mean that you should be underpaid or overworked. So we thought, why not just do this episode, not just to talk about this topic, but really to dig into proactive ways of taking ownership over your own salary, your own wants and needs and your benefits as an assistant. So let's get right into that now. And the first thing we wanted to cover is just expectations versus reality, because obviously you have a job, you're going to be paid something because otherwise it's a, an unpaid internship, which is also illegal. <laughs> but uh, what are some of the things that you should be expecting when you are, let's say, a showrunner's assistant or writer's assistant or even a script writer, when you are actually on staff in a room, what are some of the things you should be expecting in terms of compensation and other benefits? In general, you should be expecting a fair rate of pay that is often for these roles that are a little bit more specialized or intensive, probably above minimum wage. You know, PAs, on-set PAs, office PAs, that sort of thing. The standard is minimum wage, but once you start to get over into showrunner's assistant, uh, especially, you know, writer's PA, writer's assistant, script coordinator, some of those jobs are actually unionized now, which means they have a set rate of pay, but even the ones around that, like showrunner's assistant that are more amorphous, it's a, a job that often requires a lot of experience, so you should be expecting actually a decent salary. Absolutely, yeah. Writer's PA usually is kind of minimum wage of slightly above it. But like you just said, if we look at the salaries that are expected for writer's assistant and script coordinator under the IATC agreement that they signed a couple of years ago, just to give you an idea, anything that's uh, between February 2nd, 2020 and uh, June 30th, 2020 for writer's assistant should be paid $15.01 an hour. And for script coordinators, the period will be from February 2nd, 2020 until January 30th, 2021. They would be paid 
read 17.13. So it's slightly above a minimum wage. It's uh, because it's so specific. It's so technical. Usually it only makes sense that uh, you would be paid uh, above minimum wage. In fact, uh, because it's a specialty skill, it's not an entry level job by any means. Right. At the time of recording for reference, the minimum wage in California for a business with like over 10 workers or something like that is 14.25. I think it's 13.25 if you have a much smaller company, but all of these are quite large companies that are going to be abiding by that rate. So, you know, you're wanting to make sure you're getting a little bit more than that. So that idea, we will go into details on ways uh, you would be commonly screwed uh, because one of the classic ways that assistants are underpaid or one of the justification why they're underpaid is because those companies, those shows are under 30 employees or they're like a tiny mini company of only uh, 10 people. And <laughs> actually it's like part of a larger studio for obvious reasons. Exactly. Now, another really common thing that feeds into wage and whether or not you're actually getting a livable wage is your hours. So a 40 hour work week isn't the standard for professional full-time work uh, expected across the country. But when you're working on a TV show, it's very rarely ever 40 hour week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 60 hour week is kind of the guarantee. Really, you should be asking for 60 hour as the standard, and not just because you're going to be actually working 60 hours, but because it actually guarantees that you are being paid those 20 hours of overtime, which makes it a living and livable wage, especially in LA or New York for that matter. So really doing or expecting 60 hour a week, a guarantee is a big thing that you should look out for as a writer's PA, writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant, script editor, and so forth. And to contextualize that again, your typical 40 hour week would be nine to five Monday to Friday. A 60 hour week, if worked in its fullness, would be 12 hours every day. So uh, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., that sort of thing. And quite often when you are in those sort of PA roles, that is what you should go in expecting that any day could and may be a 12 hour day and sometimes more if they end up paying you overtime. And so that idea should also be expecting and perhaps uh, we shouldn't be stating it because it's so obvious, but we're still going to do it, that those hours are being billed, right? You're not working outright for the benefit of just uh, being on a show. Uh, if you are uh, asked to be working overtime, let's say you are a post PA and you're delivering uh, CDs or DVDs or whatnot, or different kinds of deliverables outside of your office hours, those hours of driving time around the city, that should be counted as hours being worked on top of the next point that you should be expecting, which is mileage. If you are driving around picking lunches or uh, delivering things, you should be expecting to be reimbursed the mileage. Now, the mileage money is going to vary depending on the studio and so forth, but generally it's actually decent money. It's one of the ways that when you're in a PA, you can make a little bit more money through that mileage thing because uh, it's not a one-to-one -one based on the cost of a petrol unnecessarily. It's more so something to compensate also for the time and the use of your car. Yeah, exactly. If you're doing long runs from you know Burbank all the way over to Malibu or across town from Santa Monica to Hollywood or the east side and that sort of thing, you're going to rack up quite a bit of mileage. I don't believe mileage is taxed because it's technically a reimbursement. So you're getting all of that money in your pocket. And that can mean the difference for some people on being able to pay their rent or buy their dinner or, you know, afford something a little extra on top of just the bare necessity. So it is a really important thing and you need to make sure that you are being compensated for that. Um, on top of mileage, there's often something called box rental when you're working for TV production.
production or film. And what box rental is essentially is them sort of compensating you for the use of your own personal equipment. Now, for these kind of jobs, most of the time, that's going to be a laptop. Sometimes it can be a cell phone as well. And if there's other some like specialized equipment they require, that can be involved in that as well. But those are the two most common things you're going to find. And the typical rate of that for, say, a laptop is about $5 a day. So you're getting maybe an extra $50 a week. But again, that's not taxed. It's reimbursement. So another $50 on top of whatever your weekly rate is, is actually quite a bit. Yeah, I, w- I would say for me, my experience has been closer to like $20, $25 a week. And I will add to that, that the box rentals amount of money is usually capped. So depending on how long your show lasts, the amount of money you'll be able to get through the box rental is going to be capped at a couple hundred dollars, whatever the case may be. So that's something to know going in is if you are using an equipment or if you plan on purchasing something, an expensive laptop thinking, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be refunded for that laptop because of work. That's not really the case. And I think that's actually one of the ways that people are getting screwed out of money is because they're expected to be using their own equipment, whether it's their own phone bill or their own computer to be working when usually that should not be the case. But here we are. And one important thing that, you know, we'll get into a little bit later that they often don't tell you is that all of this stuff, they're not really hard and fast rules or laws. You know, none of this is actually set in stone. You are able to negotiate things like a box rental. Some shows won't offer you a box rental, but if you ask for it, they can provide it to you. It is within the power of your bosses, whether it be, uh, say, a showrunner on the other side, or if you're talking to the UPM or the producer, these people have control of the budgets and the accountants and that sort of thing. And they're allowed to say yes or no to requests. So don't be afraid to do that. And we'll get into it a little bit. Absolutely. And I think that is very important. Just the idea that that is why we're mentioning all those things at the top, it's things you should be expecting, right? It's not things that you should be negotiating or rather they should be taken away. These are things that we consider to be the base minimum. These are things that if you are a writer's assistant or writer's PA, you should be reimbursed at lunches. You should be reimbursed at mileage. You should be getting a box rental, all those things, especially in the context where you are using your own equipment. All those things make sense. And real quick, a couple of extra things that you should also be expecting in any job, at least within the state of California is you should have some number of sick days. It depends on the studio and what they offer. I think it's somewhere between three to five sick days. You also have to work a minimum number of hours to like earn those sick days as well. So keep that in mind. I think it's like after 90 days, you start to accrue or be allowed those. Then health insurance, which is such a huge thing. And they've just recently been reforming a lot of the laws around this to make sure that people can't be paying people as freelancers and they need to at least offer them this. So all studios once you're employed, again, I think it's still a certain number of days have to go by to qualify, like 90. They should be offering you some sort of health insurance plan. It might not be a great plan, but at least it's something there. And it's often subsidized by the employer and a little bit better than what you might find on the open market. Absolutely. And I feel like that's part of also the difference between something like a, a desk job or like desk assistant job and something in the room. A desk assistant job usually is going to be a lot more stable. So you can accrue those hours. You can usually uh, get on those health plans because you're working in-house at a studio or a production company or something like that. Whereas if you're on a show, usually the studio is going to offer you a version of their health plan, which is not that great. But thankfully now with the different unions, uh, especially for writer's assistant and script coordinators, you can be folded into the IATSE health plan, uh, assuming obviously that you work a certain minimum hours. But obviously we all know that working on a show is not a stable job by any means. Yeah, like Alex said, if you're working at, say, a production company or a management company, you might be working on a desk 50 out of 50 two weeks of the year. And so it is reliable and stable in that way. But when you're working on a show, you're quite often there for 20 weeks, 
30 weeks, whatever it happens to be. And then you might have a big gap until your next job. So it's hard to keep uh, the same stability of those things and rack up those hours. Another thing to note is that all these things that we've just mentioned that you should be expecting from a job, you may not even be offered. So if it's not by a studio, if it's someone's little boutique literary management company working out of their garage or something like that, those people can just sort of set whatever they want. I know there are now laws coming to place that mean that they still need to offer them. A lot of those people try to take advantage of you by paying you as a freelancer, even though you're in there working day in, day out. This kind of stuff won't happen from a big studio as much if you're working on a real TV show with real backing behind it, but there are other ways that they can take advantage of you. But just be careful of the little independent people as well, because there's a lot more ways for you to get screwed over there too. And on that note, let's look at common ways you will probably get screwed over by uh, studios and EPs. And uh, the big thing, one of the major, major issues hitting this town is all those jobs that we talked about, uh, writer's PA, writer's assistant, co coordinator, showrunner's assistant, and so forth, being combined into a super job. So you're expected to do three, four jobs, but you're still being paid minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage for a mega combo of jobs. There should really be one person per each of those jobs. And, you know, a lot of shows, they will roll at least two of those jobs together. But more and more, we're seeing these job advertisements and posts that are wanting everyone to do everything at once, which is honestly literally impossible. You can't be out doing the shopping and getting the writers lunches and coffees while also being in the room the whole time, taking notes while also running the showrunner's schedule while also coordinating the scripts. Like that's literally impossible. And I don't know why they expect people to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I've personally lived those experiences. I've been on jobs where where I was expected to do two, if not three of those duties. And sometimes we would rotate between assistants. So like, so let's say my main job is like writer's assistant and the main job of this other person is Shorna's assistant, but we don't have a writer's PA. So like on odd days, I would be getting lunches and on even days, the Shorna's assistant would be getting lunches. But while I was getting lunches, obviously I'd be missing room time. So like there's all those different weird things that are happening that should not be happening. One of the common reasons why they don't want uh, to do one person per job. It's just on the money side, they're really penny pinching where it doesn't really matter because in my mind, where it actually matters is at the top, not at the bottom, right? So you should be able to be spending, you know, several hundreds of dollars per week or month on a new assistant. And that should not impact the budget as much as the quote of an EP or like a hundred million, $150 million overall deal that Netflix just gave someone. Absolutely. I mean, that's the ridiculous thing about all this is everyone always goes on about the budget and how there's no room in the budget to give an assistant a tiny raise of $50 a week, $100 a week or whatever, so that they can live. But then you see these decisions being made where they're like, uh, yeah, you know what, get that 10 seconds of music for $250,000 or yeah, let's bring on a number of grips for a sixth day to do a little thing. And then all of their rates are like $400 a day. And it's just like, ridiculous that it's the people at the very, very, very bottom who are being penny pinched the hardest for the sake of the quote unquote budget. So it, it's not just on shows as well that you're going to see these kind of job duties and descriptions being combined. You're also going to find that in your more traditional sort of desk jobs, whether it be management, agency, production company, studio, that sort of thing. A lot of the time you're going to see these sort of assistant slash X hybrids. So it might be an assistant slash coordinator. So you're still being a one-on-one -on -one assistant or one-on two or three sometimes, you know, that's another thing. Again, like you might be assigned to multiple bosses at once, but also your role might be doing assistant duties, managing people's calendars, scheduling and whatever. But then you're also designated as say a, a coordinator for that department, which means that, you know, say at a literary management, you're tracking scripts, you're tracking projects, you're doing all this stuff as well. And those are technically two different people's jobs. Even it moves up the ladder into sort of like assistant slash CE or coordinator slash CE jobs where you're doing all the coordinating. And then you're trying to bring in creative projects. You're trying to develop things with people. And again, that's 
essentially paying one person the lowest possible rate out of those things. They're still paying you an assistant rate while you're doing all this work on top of it. Absolutely. And I think that leads to the other issue, which is the blurring of those responsibilities. As soon as you give them uh, an inch, they're going to take a feet, right? Or whatever the expression is. It's just the idea that as soon as you're Sharna's assistant, which technically should be, okay, let me schedule your appointment for those meetings. And like these very specific tasks that are related to the show, showrunner assistant, then you might also be doing personal duties. You may also be asked to do, hey, uh, can you schedule the nanny? Oh, my neighbor needs their lawn fixed. Uh, do you mind calling? There's this slippery slope that always happens when one thing leads to another thing leads to another thing. And you're expected to do all these different things because the people at the top, generally speaking, they don't see the difference. So just be aware that the lowering of the lines of responsibilities is one of the many ways you're going to be screwed. Yeah. Can you imagine if a doctor at a medical practice picked up the phone and told the receptionist who's there to do jobs within the office and schedule appointments and whatever to go and pick up his kids from school or whatever it happens to be? I mean, that's the equivalent here. But unfortunately, the sad reality is, is it does happen. And, you know, you're often lucky if you end up with a boss who doesn't expect you to do some number of personal tasks for them. But again, you know, that stuff is going to extend your hours. It's going to be more work on top of what you're doing. So be aware that that is another way to more or less be taken advantage of. And some of these things, you have to roll with the punches and taking your stride for the sake of the job, but you also need to know where to draw the line. Speaking of hours, another way that you're sort of can be taken advantage of is being expected to work very late nights all the time that are perhaps outside of your guaranteed hours. This happens all the time at agencies and there's a problematic tendency there for the HR departments and the bosses to tell them not to put overtime on their sheets and not write it down because they're not allowed to do overtime. Well, then why are you making them work overtime? You know, But they're not wanting to pay them for it because they know they're going to get in trouble. And being on call 24-7 working weekends, all of this is a really common thing in the industry and most of the time people are not being compensated for it. Absolutely. And that's the big thing is you got to log in your hours, whether it's on your phone or whatever, at least you have traceability, you have receipts on the hours that you've worked. That's a huge thing. Another thing is people now are expected to work all the time, right? Especially if you're like an assistant of some kind, it's essentially check your emails. If I send you an email at 7 p.m. on a Friday night, I'm expecting you to deal with that at that moment. When the reality is those people that are sending you those emails, those EPs, those uh, top level users and so forth, they're being paid to be working 24 seven. So they have the money. It's a lifestyle essentially, right? But the assistant, they're on the clock. Whereas the show owner is not on the clock. It's a salary, the difference between something that a rate for a larger scale of money as opposed to something that's like an hourly basis. You're being paid on an hourly basis, so you should be logging those hours. And they don't necessarily understand that difference. Uh, I don't know why, because uh, presumably they lived that when they were younger. But either way, like that's something that's huge to watch out for, just the expectations of your job outside of the hours negotiated for the office hours. And it's worthwhile keeping track of those as well, even if you're not immediately going to come in to work on Monday morning with your time card filled in with extra hours for the times they texted or emailed you or whatever. If you build up enough of those, then eventually when we get to the point of perhaps negotiating a higher rate or asking for a bonus or something like that, you have that evidence in hand and you can say, look at all these times that I've been working extra. Absolutely. And you can watch or read rather job postings to really understand the difference. Here's something that uh, I received this week. This was four days ago. So we're talking like post hashtag payoff Hollywood. This is supposed to be a paid part-time position for a producer's assistant. And it says, this person will work four days per week, eight hours per day, and be expected to monitor emails when not in the office. So first of all, 
be expected to monitor emails when not in the office. That's obviously a full-time work in of itself because you're constantly on call. The second thing is this person will work four days per week, eight hours per day. So do you want to do some math real quick? That's 32 hours. The minimum for full-time work is 30 hours. So this is not a part-time position. It's a full-time position. And on the board I am on that uh, this posting was sent to, there was a whole email thread uh, talking and highlighting all those issues. And then the person revised it saying, okay, now it's a paid part-time position. This person will work four days per week, seven hours per day. In parentheses, 28 hours per week. (laughs) So, I mean, let's be honest, just because they revised the job posting doesn't make it a good working environment at that point. It's something to watch out for. When you see those little blurred lines, when it's a couple hours here, a couple hours there, know that they will abuse that power 90% of the time. So be aware of that. Oh yeah, I've known people who have taken on part-time jobs for say a talent manager. The expectation is that they work one to two days a week or 20 hours in a week or something like that. But then if the boss gets to choose that, oh, well, I'll take one hour here at 7 p.m. on Monday and then I'll take two hours here at 3 p.m. on Tuesday and then we'll take a half hour on Saturday and spread that 20 hours out over the week whenever they want, that's a full-time job. That's not part-time at all. That's just, you're only being paid this amount for being on call all the time. And think of the situation where, let's say there's a a last-minute change in scheduling where you set a meeting inside those like normal business hours, but outside of when you're supposed to work and suddenly there's a shift in the scheduling uh, is that producer uh, going to be in charge of monitoring their own schedule changes for those times or are they going to be cc'd on all those emails or are they going to be calling you asking hey can you reschedule real quick this thing and by real quick i mean okay, I know you're in the middle of watching Avengers Endgame for the fifth time, but step out of your life and do this for me because uh, I want you to work for free in this moment. So all of this can lead to another way that you can be taken advantage of that is perhaps a little bit more insidious, which is burnout and problems with stress and mental health. It's incredibly common, again, in this industry for people who are being overworked like this, being on call, being underpaid, having to struggle to survive, and working these incredibly stressful jobs for nothing to end up being affected by that in a very real physical and mental way. And that can take a toll at being able to do your job, being able to enjoy your life outside of that. So it's sort of one of these like unseen costs of the job is not only are you suffering financially, but you're also going to end up suffering in a real health way that can impact your life. And the sad thing is that in 2020, mental health is still a huge taboo and uh, your bosses are probably not going to care that much about your health. And so they're going to be the ones that are going to be pushing you because for all intents and purposes, you are working for them. They are expecting you to do the job that you're paid to do. And so it doesn't really matter. Usually, again, things are shifting slowly, but generally speaking, we've had experiences of bosses who just didn't really care about burnt out because it's something that's not as obvious as your broken bone or your broken thing. And to that idea, I will mention Personally, I have a story where uh, a few years ago, I was a Redis PA and I was in a car crash on a run and my car was wrecked and I was bleeding from my arm. And what did I do instead of going to the ER? I went back to work the same day. I went back to the office, which was a few miles away, and I was still bleeding. And we continued doing work, even though I was still bleeding. And the owner saw my bandage and was like, oh, what was that? And well, I didn't really want to be put in a position. I'm like, "Uh, I should probably go home now, but I know that you need me because I'm the assistant. And the EPs didn't really dig too much into it. And then it was back to normal. 
So even though I was in a car crash minutes ago that totaled my car, in that moment, it was sort of like, oh, I guess I sort of have to go back to work because it would be bizarre if I didn't and I could suddenly disappear. You make all those like weird judgment calls when you're in a system because you're in that position where you're expected or you think you're being expected to do these specific things and nobody's pushing back. Those producers are not saying, no, no, please, please, you should go home. You should rest. They, they don't really care that much because they're oblivious to that idea because they're busy running a show. They're busy with their own lives. So that's one thing to watch out for. It's just for your own mental health, you should take those moments and step out in the way that I should have probably stepped out. Right. But, you know, I guess the issue there is that if you had gone in and said, oh, look, I'm injured, I need to take the day off and probably maybe I even need to stay home and rest for a couple of days. The reality is that you're risking your job because they could just mm -hmm. find someone else to replace you. And that's another big problem with this industry is that, you know, there's this mentality and this culture that everyone is replaceable, even though that's not necessarily true. There are some people who are a lot better at their jobs and there are some jobs that require a lot of skills and a lot of uh, acclimatization to get used to it and get used to the environment and whatever. It isn't just the kind of thing where you can hire an unpaid laborer to come in and do the exact same job for the exact same quality. Yet you'll see these jobs for producers, agents, whoever, who are basically burning through assistance every couple of months or every six months. You'll see the same jobs advertised over and over again for the same people. And you're like, why is that? Obviously, there's something going on there, whether it's not a good work environment or whether it's too stressful. People are either leaving or being fired or you know getting burnt out and they're being replaced again. And that's sort of the risk that any of us run in those positions is that you feel like you don't have the leverage to negotiate or to stand up for yourself because at any moment they might just decide that it's too much trouble and there's a huge line of people waiting and we're just going to take one of them. Yeah. And that's the big thing that we are going to talk about in the second half of this episode, just the negotiation aspect, knowing your worth in those moments. But personally, I mean, I did feel that pressure in that moment, right? Because I was actually in a car crash in that moment. I'm thinking, okay, I should probably go home for my own sanity. And my, I mean, again, I was like actually bleeding. I, uh, you know, uh, but I decided against my own better judgment, I guess, to continue working. To that idea of uh, getting in a car crash, we should mention another way you will probably get screwed or on some level is people not paying or studios not paying for your mileage or your lunches in the context of, let's say your P card is not working. And so you're expected in that moment to use your own credit card to pay for the lunches of the entire office. Let's say you're on the run and your P card is not working and the writer's room is waiting for 10 lunches and you're there at Tender Greens faced with the cashier asking you, hey, do you mind paying $150 for these lunches? You have no other choice but to say, sure, I guess I'll pay you out of pocket. Yeah, and that's a big issue because then it's entirely up to the accounting department whether they decide to reimburse you. And sometimes they don't because they decided that you went slightly over the budget. And so that's going to come out of your own pocket. Or you bought a coffee that the showrunner requested. And our policy is that you're not allowed to have luxury drinks or whatever they call them. So we're not going to reimburse you for that. Either the writer or the showrunner, whoever might not be aware, or you might not feel comfortable asking them, hey, do you mind if you give me that $5 for the latte that I had to pay out of my own pocket when they're busy running the show and they're stressed on calls with networks or whatever. Whatever. So it really puts you in this unenviable situation of essentially fronting the money for all these people who are being paid far more than you and with no guarantee of getting it back. 
And the same goes for mileage. As mentioned, uh, some places will not necessarily uh, pay for mileage. This is something you should definitely be asking for, especially even in the context where, let's say you're a shortness assistant and you may not be doing uh, that many runs in the context of you know delivering lunches, you will still probably be making runs, like we mentioned earlier, because of personal errands. Clock those hours, clock those mileage, and ask for reimbursement. Those are the things that are important that people are not gonna just proactively give you that mileage especially if that's not something you've uh, talked about at the top. Yeah. And mileage is not just a favor for like, thanks for doing that. Here's some money. It is taking into the compensation, the devaluation of your vehicle by driving around all that time and wearing out the parts and all that sort of thing, as well as your time and labor and that sort of thing. So it's, it's something that you need to have if you are driving a vehicle for work. Absolutely. Another way that I've personally been screwed over is by delivering lunches for the whole crew, except I was not allowed to get lunch for myself. Wow. That actually happened multiple times. I was in post at the time. I was expected to deliver for the whole post crew, the editors and so forth, but I was one of the only people to not get a single lunch comp. And let me tell you, when you're actually at the PA level at that time, that matters. Uh, whether you're paying $15, $20 a lunch, whether you bring your own food, all those things sort of built up and build up and build up, not even mentioning sort of the, the mental toll of like <laughs> expecting to to feed all those people or uh, deliver all those lunches, but uh, not being uh, considered high enough to be paid or come to lunch. Yeah, that's absolutely ridiculous. And like you said, Alex, if, if a studio is essentially covering your lunch and maybe you're there late enough too that they buy your dinner, that's an extra 30 or $40 a day. That really adds up to another $150, $200 a week on top of your thing that you don't have to be spending on meals. And so that's basically money in your pocket, which is, is so important for someone at that level who's making bare minimum wage. And last but not least, another big way that you might be getting screwed over is both in terms of your rate and the guaranteed hours. Like we mentioned earlier, there's a big difference between 40 hours and 60 hours. You should be aiming for 60 hours because that has the built-in overtime. Whether or not you're making those hours doesn't matter. You should be paid 60 hours a week. And the other thing is the rate some places will be non-union, so watch out for those places. And even if they're not non-union, like we're going to mention in the second part, you should still be negotiating based on union rates. When it comes to those hours, some places might only offer you a 50-hour guarantee or a 55-hour guarantee. You know, I think that's standard for Fox is an 11-hour guarantee. But if you ask and you negotiate, you can get it up to that 12, and it's honestly not that much for them to do that. And on that note, let's thank our sponsor for this episode, BetterHelp. Yeah, if you're in one of these assistant jobs struggling with your mental health, or if just a if something is stopping you from achieving your goals or a positive mindset, BetterHelp offers online counseling just for you. They have licensed professional counselors across all 50 U.S. states and worldwide who specialize in everything from depression and anxiety to relationships and even insomnia. BetterHelp is conveniently available on every major platform like Android, iOS, mobile, web, and desktop, so you can find help in your own time at your own pace in a way that's comfortable for you. Anything you share is, of course, confidential and secure, and best of all, it's affordable. We're big believers in taking care of one's mental health, especially as writers and creatives. So when you sign up for Better Health as a Paper Team listener, you'll get 10% off your first month with a discount code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash paperteam. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs and get matched with the counselor you'll love. Plus, if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash paperteam to get 10% off your first month now. 
All right, let's get into the nitty gritty of getting the real value out of your job, both in terms of potential opportunities, but also negotiations. What are ways of not just knowing your worth, but really proactively making moves to get it? And the big thing up top that we gotta say is salaries are negotiable. Even though it may seem like you're getting a rate and you can't talk it out, salaries are negotiable. Whether with a studio or the showrunner or an EP or someone on the team, salaries are negotiable. And you need to know your worth. You need to know that the salary that you need is a living wage. It's not something that's under minimum wage. It's not minimum wage. It's a livable wage. And the benefit of being paid a living wage for them is also immense because being paid your worth means that you are able to devote yourself entirely to doing your job and getting the most out of it. It means you don't have to worry about healthcare or food or rent. And it actually means you can focus on the task at hand, maybe at pitching stories if you're in the room, at helping your bosses, even with the laundry. Uh, And of course, that helps you get time for your own writing. And so being paid a living wage ultimately means you can actually have a learning experience and it's not just a job. Yeah, it's super important to at least try negotiating. The worst thing that can happen is that they say no, and this is all we have room for. And then you're still getting the same rate you were going to get before. It's very, very, very rare for someone to be so offended by you asking for a little more money that they rescind their job offer and take it away. I'm not going to say it won't ever happen because people are crazy, but uh, (laughs) I think the most likely scenario is that you perhaps get a little bit more than you're asking for. And the worst case scenario is you get exactly what you were going to get before anyway. So why not? Absolutely. And the reality is that you will be shamed for wanting to be paid. I think that's a a common uh, response that I've gotten. I've talked to a lot of people and they've gotten that whole idea of, if you look online, just look up the, you know, pay off Hollywood hashtag, listen to all the different uh, experiences that people have. It's very common for whether it's business affairs or even the show owner sometimes to be like, wait, what? Like uh, you were getting exactly what you want. You're in the room right now. Isn't that enough? What do you mean by getting paid money to live in LA and not die in the street? Yeah. And that's part of the problem is that this industry and these positions are seen as a great honor in and of themselves. Like, aren't you lucky that you get to work in Hollywood and that you get to pick up my lunches and you get to, you know, be a part of this thing? Like, yes, that's a benefit of it is that you're getting this experience and you're meeting these people and whatever, but it's still a job and you should still be expected to be compensated fairly for that. So don't let them use that kind of glitz and glamour of Hollywood. This is your dream, isn't it? There are a million other people who want to do this to kind of shame you into accepting less than you're worth. Yeah. And to that idea, let's look into sort of actually negotiating. And the first thing to know is you got to realize that you are undervalued. And the best way to realize that is by looking at the hard data of how much these people are being paid. So for example, like we mentioned up top, let's say you're asked to do three jobs. Maybe you're a showrunner's assistant and a writer's assistant and a writer's PA. Those are compensated, let's say roughly at $15 an hour. So that's $45 an hour. That's three people, 15, right? So when you're actually talking to, whether it's business affairs or whoever it is, and you're talking about your rate and they're saying, okay, so your rate, I think is going to be uh, 13.45 or maybe 14.50. Well, hold on. The position requires these three different jobs. Usually those are compensated 15 an hour. So I would expect 45 an hour, but maybe just for you, I'll give you a deal. And I'm only asking you $30 an hour or $25 an hour. You're giving them a reasoning of data. This is actually the worth that I'm putting in. It's three jobs. And you're also giving them the benefit of 
actually you're paying less still than three people because you're only paying me $30 or what have you instead of $45. You're still in a position to leverage what you have and you're still in a position of power, especially in the context where they need you, where the short owner wants you, presumably if you're negotiating rate at that point, that means they want you, right? Remember that. So at that moment, you should be able to negotiate salary and put that foot forward. Yeah, and I think one thing to keep in mind too is that it's best not to try to negotiate or set a price or a number before you are offered the job. If they're asking you in an interview or in an email after an interview, oh, so like, what's your rate? What have you previously been paid? I mean, I don't even know if they're legally allowed to ask you that anymore. No, I, I don't think, think there's a law. Legal. So don't give in to that. Don't set the number first. If you say, oh, I'll work for this, then you're only going to get less than that. Allow them to come to you with an offer and then negotiate it up from there. And it's not just your rate or your salary that can be negotiated. You can negotiate any aspect of this job offer from everything we said before about guaranteed hours are super important, making sure you are going to be paid mileage, getting a box rental, all of those little things you can throw in on top. Like there's, there's a lot of fixation on the exact numbers of your rate, but sometimes it can be more productive to accept a rate at a certain amount and then negotiate around that to bump up what you're ultimately bringing home. Right. The important part about the extracurricular activities that you may be getting in terms of benefits and so forth. It's the difference between something that you are owed as opposed to something that's given to you because, you know, maybe you've negotiated separately. So for example, you shouldn't compromise on your rate to get box rental or to get mileage or to get lunches. Those are things that you should be expecting. If it's something more like a Netflix thing or like an HBO Go subscription or something like that, that they want you to have to work, maybe that's something that's more beneficial to you because you're not going to have to pay $10 a month uh, on your HBO Go subscription or whatever it is. But is that $10 a month worth $1 an hour decrease? Because a dollar an hour times 60, is 60, it's already $60 a week if we're doing a 60 hour guarantee times four, that's $240 that you've lost if uh, you negotiated like sort of like a $10 Netflix subscription, assuming that is what you're looking out for. The other thing to note is whether you're union or non-union, doesn't matter. You should be negotiating at least union rate, if not above. If you are a writer's assistant and you're on a show that is not covered by IIT Local 871, you should still be negotiating based on those rates at minimum. And especially if you have experience to back it up, you are in a position of power because the show owner presumably wants you for your experience. They want someone who's talented and has the experience to be a writer's assistant or a script coordinator. Like we said up top, those are not entry-level positions. So you have a little bit of leverage that maybe, let's be honest, a writer's PA may not necessarily have. So use that to your advantage. I think it's important not to feed into this kind of culture of entry-level position, minimum wage, five years experience minimum. That's something that gets asked for all the time and it's absolutely ridiculous. If you were working a job in a corporate company and you had worked the same job there for five years, you would be expect to be paid quite a lot more than someone who just came in on their first day. And it's exactly the same when you're working on shows, just because you don't have that same level of continuity of working on the same floor in the same office for five years in a row, you've worked on five, six other shows before you've done this work. You have real tangible experience that makes you better at your job and makes the show run better. It makes everyone's lives run easier. And that is worth being paid more for. Absolutely. The other big element to keep in mind is just knowing what you really want and what your bottom line is. Because like we'll see in a moment, there are other things to get out of the job than money. So it's really 
up to you to decide where you want to compromise. And one thing that I've at least thought about multiple times is sort of the balance between title bump versus salary. Where's the compromise? Because there was a point in my life where I was offered a title bump and I, I took it. But when I was offered the title bump, it was sort of like in this, uh, and I just told you the story of Mike uh, before this episode. It was in an open office. I was at front desk and the person approached me and said, hey, we really like what you do. We want to bump you up to this position, but we don't have the money in the budget to pay you the bump in the position, which, I mean, let's be honest, it's a sort of an increase in responsibilities for equal money, if not less money at the end of the day, because mileage was going to be taken out. And I consider in that moment, obviously not taking it, but I took it because in my mind, it's the classic thing of, okay, at least I get the title bump so that next time I'm on another show, I can leverage that title bump on my resume to get actual fair pay. Well, spoiler alert, those people that wanted me to do the work uh, for cheap, essentially, they didn't really help me out for the next job. So it's sort of a negotiating against yourself to be thinking, oh, maybe I'll take it this time, but if that means that I'm going to be uh, better off uh, tomorrow, whatever, you're going to take those opportunities to negotiate for yourself. Now, just to finish on that story real quick, I did negotiate a bump in salary, so there was a slightly happier ending in that level, but it's definitely something that's entered my mind in terms of where's the compromise between, oh, I really want this title bump, but I don't want to risk it by asking for more money, when the reality is they do have the money because they're a studio. They're not as some small indie production at USC. They're, you know, this X huge production company or this X huge studio. And if you're working on the show that's being produced, that's being broadcast on a major network or any OTT, then you have the right to negotiate for a higher salary. Yeah. Again, like take away the glitz and the glamour facade of it again. And imagine that you were working as a bagger in a grocery store, like a Ralph's and your boss came up to you and was like, Hey, I really like what you're doing. How about this? You're going to work an extra 15 hours a week, including weekends, and you're going to manage everyone else. And we're going to call you senior grocery bagger, uh, but we can't afford to pay you anymore. How does that sound? Why would you ever want to do that? Again, is just this sort of thing where they're like expecting you to feel lucky that you're even here. So take your medicine and be happy about it. And we're not going to compensate you fairly because we think we can get away with it. And what we need to do is make sure they know that they can't get away with that. Absolutely. And I feel like that's the power of not just this podcast, but the movement in general, just the idea that if everybody is aware that they're able to negotiate, you have leverage in your position. If they're asking you to do more, that means they like what you're doing already. That means if you were to say, no, I'm going to walk out right now, not that you would necessarily, but let's say for sake of argument that you want to walk out right now, that means they would have to retrain a random person to do that job again. It's not quite the same for Red SPA. I feel like Red SPA, it's sort of like one-to-one, but anything above Red SPA, you have leverage to negotiate something more. And even as Red SPA, to be quite honest, if you have more than one season experience, you have the power to negotiate something that's more than minimum wage in many places. Yeah, that's a really good point. And something I've thought about before is just, you know, the opportunity cost of them having to stop and take more time out of their day to train someone to familiarize them with who are all of these people and what are they all like for lunch and, you know, or what's the system here where we take down the notes and whatever. A lot of the time people are so busy in these jobs that they would rather just be like, fine, I'll talk to the accountant. I'll talk to the studio. We'll get you more money rather than have to go through that and inconvenience themselves. And a common thing that uh, a friend of mine did, uh, this is a completely non-industry person, but a friend of mine was working uh, as an uh, engineer at some company at the time. And he essentially 
wrote down all the different things he was doing at the company, kind of like a, a manual of some kind, some kind of like a sort of a, a training manual of those are the different tasks of uh, how to do this thing, how to do that thing, very specific protocols that only he knew how to do. And there was a point where he was renegotiating his salary and he showed uh, his bosses essentially a version of, hey, I've got this thing that I created. It's sort of like a training manual. It's got all these different protocols. I know all these uh, different steps. So clearly I'm very valuable because I'm the one who knows how to do all these things and I've synthesized all that information in this document. And the bosses were essentially saying, well, tough S, uh, we're gonna fire you and we're just gonna use your document to then retrain someone for much, much cheaper. Wow. And he walked out and and then he destroyed the document. <laughs> so at the end of the day, he moved on to a better job. But the company that he worked for didn't get the manual. The company thought that they could cheat him out of his raise, but he got the last laugh at the end of the day. But all this is to say that you can take a version of that where you can synthesize what you're doing, even as Redis PA, you can create a document. And that's actually what always happens in most PA type jobs is someone, your past Redis PA, past assistant, especially when they move up, they create some kind of document, some kind of reference to help the next assistant over. So you can create that resource not to get fired, but to use that as leverage for either a bump up saying, hey, if you bump me up, I already have the training tools to help someone replace me or if they're using that against you, you can then destroy the document. It's not their property by any means. It's like something that you created. It's your own protocols and you can take that with you. But either way, you know your own worth because you've quantified it in this document. So we touched on a little bit earlier, just these extra benefits and things that you can ask for outside of salary and guaranteed hours, et cetera. And so I just wanted to quickly kind of list a few things that you might not have even considered you could enter into the negotiation or ask for at a later point. So working in, in the entertainment industry, you are expected to keep abreast of all the TV shows that are going on, all the movies that have come out. A, it's going to be part of the conversation at work, and B, it might directly impact your creative conversations at work. If you're a writer's assistant in a room, everyone's talking about the latest movie that came out and like, oh, you know what I really liked was that scene where this happened. Could we use that sort of thing in our story? Or perhaps, oh, you know what? This was actually a little bit close to this movie or this TV show that just came out. Maybe we need to change that. And if you want to be abreast of all that, then you need to have all these subscriptions and be outgoing and seeing all of these movies. And that's quite a lot of money for someone who's not making much. So I don't think it's unreasonable. And I've heard it quite often for bosses to basically pay for, you know, an AMC A-list or, you know, movie pass when that existed, Netflix subscriptions, things like that, if they want you to have that level of knowledge and if it's useful in your job. Another thing they can do is cover your lunches. Now, whether your, you know, writer's PA picking up lunches for other people, or even whether you're working at a desk, you know, there can be a system in place where if you're going and getting a lunch, say with uh, someone from another company or from a studio or a network or whatever, and you're networking and you're bringing valuable things back to the company through that, then they can reimburse your expenses for that thing. You can pay for the drinks that you had, all that sort of thing that's not uncommon as well in those kind of jobs. Another thing that's being more and more common is actually being paid for your script reading because you're expected to read scripts on nights and weekends if you're working in literary management or agencies or production companies. A lot of the time people just assume that you're going to take five, 10 hours out of the rest of your week that you're not working to be up to date on all these scripts and do all this reading. But now some agencies are starting to pay their assistants that money to be doing that over the weekends, which I think is good and is necessary with the amount of workload they're expecting. Absolutely. That's another thing to keep in mind, uh, just to tie it back to the idea of knowing your worth. If you're doing all those different jobs, script reader is another kind of job that should be paid. So itemize what you're doing 
And that way you can negotiate when you're asking those extra bumps, those extra benefits in those meetings with the showrunner, the EP, the boss, whoever it is, you have actual data. You can go over every single thing that you're doing that nobody else is able to do and ask for more on that capacity. Another thing that's becoming more common, especially at agencies where they expect you to wear a certain level of dress code, like suits, shirts, ties, nice dresses, whatever it happens to be, is being paid like a dry cleaning or clothing allowance to essentially cover you know, you having to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe that you can wear at work. This is common in other occupations. I remember when I worked as a uh, an usher at a cinema, you were expected to wear this vest and this particular shirt and stuff that they gave you. And so they would put a small little stipend in your paycheck to essentially maintain and clean those. And why would that not be the same here? So to me, a lot of those negotiations for extra benefits and other elements come down to sort of the compromise that you're making between what you want out of the job versus what they are offering you. A lot of the time, like I mentioned at the top, you will be shamed for wanting to ask more. It's sort of that pressure of, you should be happy to be doing what you're doing. Why are you asking for more? And that's usually the case when either the showrunner doesn't really understand you or you're negotiating with the producing EP in charge of the budget. And so they're going to be pressuring you into saying it's for the good of the show that we can't pay you that much because if we paid you a hundred dollars a week more, how can we afford this A-list celebrity? That's not, that's not possible. Uh, so it's, it's this weird, like psychological thing that happens when you're in front of someone trying to negotiate your rate that you feel like you owe them something in a way you owe them your job. You're afraid of losing it. It's a scarcity market in the sense of there's not many job postings. Everybody wants those few jobs. So you don't want to risk it for the biscuit. You're saying, okay, I'm just going to do the job. I'm going to take what they're offering me. And that's that. But you have to fight for what you're worth. And even if you're already on a show, there are ways of teaming up with other assistants. That's how I got my bump on the show is by teaming up with the shortness assistant. And together we went to the producing EP and we said, Hey, this is not right that I'm getting X amount of money. Even though I'm doing X, Y, Z things, this other person is making more or less money, et cetera, et cetera. That way you can negotiate and saying, it doesn't make sense even by your own standards for why I'm getting this amount of money. And so that way you can use and sort of leverage your knowledge and leverage the people around you to bring the showrunner or the EP or the studio to the senses. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones who should be fighting for you. The showrunner, the EPs, they're the ones you need to put in your corner. And if they don't value you, then you need to be prepared to walk out, frankly. If they don't value you then, that means they don't value your creative input, they don't value you as a person, they don't value you as a writer, they don't value you as anything more than someone to cash in the check. If you've ever seen a good agent or a good lawyer negotiate a deal or a contract, you will be amazed at what they can wring out of people. You'll start off with like, here's the, the offer. It's bare minimum. It's scale. It's nothing. You get 0%. This is whatever. And by the time they finish going back and forth and redlining, they've come away with tens of thousands of dollars more for people. They've come away with these guarantees, with these better credits, with these sort of like extensions of contracts. And the exact same thing can apply on a smaller scale to you. So if those people are able to negotiate for that, then it's expected that there's going to be that back and forth. And these people in like business affairs at studios who are making these calls about what people can be paid, they do that every single day. That's their entire job is to negotiate things with people. They're not going to blow up the world because someone has dared to ask them for a little more. 
to that point, that is the angle that you need to pick is if you're angling to negotiate with business affairs, let's say, or the studio, that's one angle that you will be essentially on your own in a way versus if you're uh, on staff uh, in, in a room, then usually you'll be going through the showrunner or the producing AP to negotiate that because they need to be kept in the loop on some level. Sometimes they don't even care. Sometimes they're like, uh, this is above or below my pay grade. You should be dealing with that yourself. And to be honest, if they don't really care, that is a huge red flag in my mind. I've experienced that very thing where I was working with people who didn't really value me as a creative, me as a person, and they didn't really offer me any improved benefit by any means. And so I was the one left to fight for my myself in the context where presumably they're the ones who should be fighting for you. They're the ones who should be fighting for the lower levels, for the assistance, because we all know the assistants are the future of this town, blah, 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 blah. They're going to be staff fighters someday, et cetera, et cetera. So it's sort of like a put up or shut up moment where if you're in a position where you're asking something and they're not willing to give it to you or they're fighting you for it, then that's a huge red flag and you should maybe walk away. For sure. And there are actually a lot of showrunners, EPs, writers who are setting a great example. And you'll see a lot of threads about this on Twitter, where they talk about how and why they compensate their support staff for various reasons above and beyond just their base rate of pay. And one of these is essentially writers pulling together money to give their writers assistants and showrunner assistants and whatever Christmas bonuses or even covering their uh, rate of pay over a hiatus where they wouldn't be paid otherwise by the studio. This is not money that they're pulling out of the studio. This is literally money out of their own pockets that they're deciding to pay because they get pretty comfy writer's salaries compared to the support staff around them who are getting paid very, very little. And that's very generous of them and very nice. And I'm glad that it's starting to become more of the standard. Absolutely. And it's not even just the showrunners or EPs who are doing this. Uh, I know for Christmas bonuses especially, what often happens is most of the writers pull around and pull their own money. And or at least that's my personal experience. They've pulled money and then they give that to the support staff essentially. Uh, so it's collectively the room it gives those bonuses to the support staff, which I really feel like that's probably the best way of like thanking the support staff is, I know it sounds a bit crude, but like money or like ways of thanking them in those moments, the gap between support staff and even staff writer on some level. If you're a staff writer on a, a 20 episode season, uh, there's a huge chasm between sort of like the staff writer level and even like a writer's PA or writer's assistant in terms of the salary. Yeah, they often don't ask the staff writer to participate in the pooling of that money because they get paid so little compared to even a story editor. And like Alex said, rather than giving them a Starbucks gift card or an AMC, you know, movie ticket or whatever, like money really is the best gift. Yeah, there's no question about it. I've been on jobs where the bonus was, all right, here's a $25 iTunes gift card. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I'm on Android. Uh, <laughs> I, th I thought we discussed this before. <laughs> what am I going to do with $25? I'm trying to pay rent here. Uh, that's happened many, many times. Now that we've looked at ways of uh, negotiating salary and getting your fair rate, let's look at other ways of getting a real value out of your job. And that is through the different kinds of opportunities that you would be getting through the position as an assistant. And the first little category we want to look at here is just creatively. How can you be involved and get something creatively out of this experience? Now, a lot of these things 
you're not going to be negotiating immediately after your job offer or in the interview, that kind of thing. It's something that's going to be kind of broached along the way. That said, there might be certain opportunities for you if you're a script coordinator or a writer's assistant to be asking in the interview, is it likely for me to get a freelance script? You know, how do you like to deal with that sort of stuff? That can be a conversation that you have. And you can have a frank conversation about how creatively involved do people tend to be. But when it comes to these kind of actual asks, if you want to be doing these things, I think maybe it's once you're sort of in there in the mix, you get a sense of how everything runs, you can start to kind of push these a little more. Yeah, I agree to some extent. My personal experience has been that, especially when it comes to uh, writer's assistant uh, interviews, and I know friends of mine in terms of the script coordinator side, when you're in the position where you are interviewed for a writer's assistant position or an SC position, and presumably you have that experience to back it up, then you have a little bit more leverage to be asking for something, or at least like Nick said, seeing the flow of the room. How do you run the room essentially? Uh, are you the kind of person to allow assistants, writer's assistant in the room to pitch? Is it more of a, you're here to type notes and shut up kind of a thing? Especially if I've uh, had a half credit on the past uh, season of another show, am I gonna be able to get a script this season? What's the feel? And a lot of those things you can sort of get organically in the conversation with the showrunner and the EP, just based on the number of episodes that are gonna be in the season, based on the number of writers they have on staff. You can do the math in your own head if it's like two or three people in the room and they have 15 episodes or something and you're the writer's assistant i think there's a decent chance unless they're uh, a-holes that you may get an episode but if it's something like there's like 10 writers in the room and they are writing like three episodes or some absurdly low number then that's going to be much trickier for you to negotiate anything but yeah just kind of touching on the various ways that you could potentially be creatively involved assuming that that's your goal here you might want to see if you can be pitching in the room. And now that might work best if you are perhaps the writer's assistant because you're in there taking notes, you're talking to people as uh, these kind of things are going on. And it's a more natural opportunity if you just jump in and be like, hey, what about this? Especially if there's a gap or silence or you know that sort of thing. I think that that's fairly common, hopefully. But there are definitely also some writer's assistants who are maybe expected to shut up and take notes. Now, if you are not just immediately in the room as the writer's assistant hearing these things, maybe you are the script coordinator who is out sitting in their office and not in the room as much, or even the writer's PA and that sort of thing. This is maybe a bit more of a nuanced thing that you have to kind of work your way up to. Maybe you can start by talking to some of the writers who you're closer with about the episodes and you could try pitching them ideas directly rather than kind of waltzing into the room and expecting to pitch it to the showrunner. Yeah, I would say like even the the step before that, if you're a writer's PA or a script writer is a little bit more senior, but if you're like someone like a writer's PA, I would ask other writers or even the showrunner actually, I really like what you're doing, blah, blah. I'm really curious about the process. Is it okay? Okay, if I sit in the room between uh, lunches and so forth when uh, I have uh, some free time. And usually people are pretty open to the fact that as long as you're keeping quiet and you're not pitching, uh, because usually that's a big no-no, especially as a writer's PA to be pitching in the room. But just being present, I think that's a huge get as a writer's PA and something that you should be trying to get at that level. As writer's assistant, pitching in the room is a huge thing. I think it's going to be a give and take in the context of depending on the kind of showrunner you're getting, uh, depending on the vibe of the room. It's hard to really be prescriptive about that when it's uh, sort of a vibe and politics of it. But like, like you just said, again, if 
outside of the room, you can talk to other writers, especially if it's a writer who has the ear of the showrunner. I feel like that's definitely a move to make in terms of understanding, oh, hey, what do you feel about this idea? You can sort of bounce off ideas. And then maybe that EP or that writer in the room really starts to like your idea. And maybe they're going to be bringing that up in the room saying, hey, Alex or Nick really said something super interesting over lunch about uh, Jon Snow and uh, how he's actually a Zora's eye or whatever. Uh, so those are the ways that you can really make an impact in terms of pitching in the room or, and even outside of the room. And we touched on this just before, but I just wanted to cover freelance scripts again once you're in the room. I think all of this, like you said, depends on the number of writers in the room, the number of episodes ordered. But there's quite often an expectation that one person or two people, if they're paired up together out of the showrunner's assistant, the script coordinator and the writer's assistant will be given either a script that they co-write with another writer or the showrunner or one that they write together and they're mentored by someone if there are enough episodes in the run. Sometimes on other shows, even the staff writer doesn't get a script because that's how they work and they didn't have a number of sort of things. But I would never expect as the writer's PA to get a script. Oh so don't kind of hold on to hope for that. But if you are in one of those more senior experienced positions, and there's a lot and a lot of politics around this stuff, but that's a really great opportunity when you're doing show after show is to start to get a couple of credits and co-credits to build up towards your name that will help you eventually get staffed. Right. And to me, that comes down to those uh, job interviews, or at least those initial moments where you're talking to the showrunner, trying to gauge, is this job worth it for me? Because especially if you've done at least a season as a writer's assistant or a season as a script coordinator, that should really be something you should be proactively leveraging, or at least trying to get in those meetings and trying to understand hey, I've done this before. Is there, what's the upward mobility here? Is there any room for me to get a script? How many people are in the room? And you, again, you can do the math in your own head. And uh, if it's a, a show with eight episodes or fewer, I think that's going to be trickier. But if it's like a network show with, you know, 20 episodes a season, 99.9% .9 of those shows will have at least one, if not two of those episodes a season being co-written by some of the support staff. So that's really your opportunity to shine in those moments, whether it's the short assistant, whether it's the researcher sometimes, if it's a kind of some kind of procedural, usually it's more school coordinator researcher. Writer's assistant usually are the lowest on the totem pole, ironically enough, despite the fact that they're in the room. But of the senior support staff positions, all those should be leading to some kind of freelance script on those uh, high episode numbered shows. Yeah. In fact, I think it's actually a WGA rule that some number of the scripts out of a, a given number and an order have to be freelance and they can't be written by the people in the room. Now that said, they could still, and many writers often do just bring in outside writers who they know from working on other shows and they give them their freelance script. They come in for a week or two and they break their episode and they go in, they write it and they do whatever. Yeah. Uh, so they don't have to give it to the support staff, but it's, it's common and it's, it's more or less expected these days. Yeah. I believe it's a, a certain number of episodes where that rule gets gets uh, triggered. I don't think it's, uh, let's say, an ep eight episode show. I think it's like 11 or 13. Yeah. That, that makes the most sense because uh, as soon as you hit like 10 episodes, that's going to be a big politics game of uh, who gets what episode when there's a uh, very few episodes to be credited. The other thing, I guess, is the order of it. Usually you start uh, with the uh, EP or the showrunner writing the first episode, and then the most senior writer after that will write the second, the next most senior writer, and you work your way down the ladder to the point where the staff writer is writing the seventh or the eighth or the ninth episode. But then once you start to hit big kind of points again, like a mid-season finale or final episode, that's when the big EPs and guns 
guns are going to jump in again. So it's possible that you have 10 episodes and they get to cycle through the room once and they're not going to give the writer's assistant the finale to write. Yeah. I mean, the, the, again, it goes back to something. I think I mentioned it in the state of access episode that we did a, a while ago. Just the idea that a lot of the EPs are hoarding credits sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the problem. In, in many ways, we've already covered how you're getting screwed from a, a job perspective, salary perspective. But even on, on an upward mobility trajectory, a lot of those assistants are getting screwed by the lack of opportunities to get credit or to get that freelance script, to get that opportunity to pitch in the room. And so really, I would recommend to try to find a showrunner or an EP or a room that really values your input as a creative, because that's the way you're going to be moving forward in this industry. So there are a couple of other ways that you can get your writing into the show or on the page or be helping creatively that aren't full-on freelance scripts or pitching in the room. And one of those is the ability to jump in and write scenes or pages. So it might be that there is a huge rewrite due or all of the writers are out of the room on uh, assignment and it's really just you and two other writers and the showrunner or whatever it happens to be. Quite often there, there will be an opportunity for you to jump in and write a bit of an outline or even write a few pages or a scene of a script that they're breaking up and trying to do in group work. This is probably one of the biggest great areas we've covered on this episode. The line between sort of free labor versus opportunity, I think is very blurred in this area where you're supposed to or want to write pages or scenes or sequences in an outline or a draft or what have you. This is definitely something that I feel like it's between you and your showrunner, because the goal in my mind is you should be accepting those opportunities with the goal of either getting a script at some point or for the showrunner or the people you're working for to get you the next job where you will be writing. Because essentially what you're doing when you're writing uh, scenes, and I'm not talking about a couple of scenes, I'm talking uh, you know much more than that. At the point where you're essentially doing free labor in that capacity, free creative labor, it should be, am I getting something in return? Because doing free labor isn't getting something in return. Writing something for a show isn't something that's an opportunity unless it leads to something else. Because that writing that you're doing you could also be doing it on your own pilot and presumably writing it for your own pilot would get you further than writing a scene for a show that may or may not get produced and the showrunner doesn't care that you know you wrote that scene because it's going to be blended in with someone else's credit. So that's one huge red flag I would watch out for, or at least a gray area. Red flag is debatable, but I've definitely been put in a position where I was expected to write stuff for a show without getting credited or paid, but I did it because, hey, A, it's a great opportunity. B, you're hopefully impressing the people above you. And C, you can use that opportunity in future work, whether it's a writer's assistant work, script creditor work, or even staff writer work, to show that, hey, I'm a team player. I've been doing these things and so forth. And the context where I did it was kind of like in the thick of it, especially at the point where having to produce under super tight deadlines, scripts or outlines, uh, those assistants are oftentimes going to be called to put up or shut up in the context of, hey, are you able to write one scene here, one scene there? And you're a little bit pressured in this context to be writing those scenes. And you do want to write those scenes because you're like, oh my God, I've waited my whole life to write a scene on uh, Grey's Anatomy or Alimobile or whatever it is. So heck yeah, I'm going to do it. But if it's one scene, that's fine. But if it's something that's like recurring and recurring and recurring, that's something to watch out for. And it dangerously leads into free labor as opposed to opportunity. Yeah. Like Alex said, I think that 
the first couple of times you get to do this, it's awesome because exactly all the things that you just said, it's an opportunity for you to impress people and, and get your writing on the show, but you're not getting a credit for it. So just watch that line and make sure that it doesn't go too far into, hey, do you want to just outline this entire episode for me? And then why don't you just take a pass at the script and I'll go over it and you're not going to get paid for that or whatever. So watch out for that sort of level of exploitation. Yeah. And what you just mentioned just now is something that actually happens on a show on multiple shows, actually, that our listeners probably know, script coordinators have done outlines or uh, writer's assistant have done outlines for those shows without being compensated or credited. It's happened very frequently on many shows that you can think of. And so that's what I mean by if it's one scene, a whole season, whatever. If it's uh, more than two or three scenes, if it's uh, if you have at least like one scene, essentially an episode, that's half an episode already. That's something that's really important to note. And I would get those receipts and keep those receipts of this is how much I wrote. This is what I wrote. And you can clearly, it's very obvious where you wrote and what you didn't write because you're the one delivering your final draft, the file, you're the one delivering your PDF, you're the one presumably taking notes. So you're still going to be involved in that creative capacity. So be aware of that line and make sure that you're getting something in return outside of, hey, this uh, actor is saying my line on screen. Right. Perhaps you can even use that sort of free work as leverage to getting that freelance script. Look, I basically wrote half a script last season with the stuff that I did. I'd really love the opportunity to be credited for it and to get this kind of thing. Absolutely. And that's the point where if they say no, then you should be prepared to walk away. Because if you did free labor and you are presumably good assistant, otherwise they would not have kept you. And you are in the position now in, let's say it's the second season or the third year that you're on the show and you're still at the same level. They haven't really raised uh, your salary. They seem to be an opening, maybe, maybe not. You should be asking at that point outright for a script or a bump or something. That's the point where you should be having one foot out the door if they're not giving you what you want and moving on. Yeah, a lot of people say not to stick around multiple seasons on a show without anything changing in between, whether that's a script or whether that's a move up in the ladder or, you know, even getting staffed after three years or whatever it happens to be. If you're just sitting there in the same position, not moving anywhere, then you're never going to move anywhere and you're better off taking your chances elsewhere. So uh, the last little bit that you can potentially be involved in creatively is stuff outside of the scripts of the show. And that can be anything from running the Twitter account for the room and the social media stuff for the writer's room or one of the characters in the show or whatever it happens to be. They might also need some help sometimes writing something for on-screen graphics like a newspaper clipping or a resume or something like that. And then again, there's these kind of companion pieces now that are either little web series or companion podcast to things. I've known a number of people who have been writers assistants and whatever have had the opportunity to write entire episodes of podcasts or uh, web series that accompany them and then even go on to win sort of awards for those. And that can actually be a way to directly be credited for your work in association with the show. Yeah. And to that idea, I mean, those are great opportunities, but again, it ties back to the line between free labor versus opportunity. If you're writing full episodes of a podcast or full uh, web series shorts and not getting paid in any capacity for it, that's dangerous territory because we are in 2020. Obviously, those things are guilt covered. Maybe not podcasts, but at least a web series online entertainment is definitely covered by the guild. All those things, you should be compensated on some level. And so if you're writing that, that's something that you should be asking for. When it comes to like on-screen graphics, news clippings, stuff like that, to me, that's a little bit more ambiguous. It's kind of like research. When you are a researcher, 
even when you're a showrunner's assistant, oftentimes you'll be asked, hey, do you mind doing research on this very specific thing? And you'll be spending a lot of time, sometimes outside of office hours, researching uh, specific categories or specific topics because you want to impress your boss, obviously. That's a lot of work that's creative work and that could be rewarding in of itself. But at the same time, it's going to be sort of a give and take of what am I getting out of this? Is this part of my job description or am I just doing this because... I just really want to do the job this means, but I'm still not being paid for that job. I'm just doing it voluntarily. Yeah, like you said before, in a lot of procedurals, they actually have paid researches as its own job, whether it's a crime show or a medical show or that sort of thing. So um, just be aware of when your responsibilities are straying too far into, wait a minute, is this a full job that I'm doing for free? Now, beyond just being creatively involved in the show, another huge opportunity that you have when you are writer's assistant, script writer, and so forth, is just building relationships, the people around you. And there's many ways of handling that both poorly and really well. The number one thing that most aspiring writers are thinking about when they are working in this creative capacity around other writers is, how can I get them to read my script? And that's always the kind of minefield that you have to navigate. And I think that the, the sort of the common wisdom is essentially not to ask for it. It is to make yourself very useful to them, become genuine friends with them. Like don't just sort of like cozy up to them because you know that they can help your career, like genuinely engage with these people, find out what they're interested in, take a real interest in their lives and their well-being, and create actual relationships and friendships. And then naturally along the way, it's going to evolve into them, if they like you enough, asking to read your script or maybe recommend you to their manager or whatever it happens to be. Absolutely. I mean, it, it goes back to all the many different sort of like networking uh, episodes that we've done in the past. At the end of the day, it's got to be about building your relationship, building friendship, building some kind of connection. Maybe you get a mentor out of it. It's great. Those are the places where you have the opportunity to grab a drink, maybe not during work, but definitely after work or after the show wrapped. Keep following up with those people. Stay in touch. Ask, uh, hey, I really value you as an EP. I'd love to read what you wrote because I feel inspired by what you're pitching in the room or whatever. And then sometimes they're going to be giving you their script to read. And that's one way to bridge the gap. I've definitely done it in the past. It's the classic thing of let me do you a favor and then you'll do me a favor where if you ask for their script, sometimes they'll be like, I feel so flattered that you care what I'm writing. Uh, what are you writing? And then you'll be able to send them your script. It's not often that happens, but sometimes, especially if you've built that relationship for X amount of months, X amount of years, and you feel like you are vibing with them, it's honestly a little bit expected that assistants are not going to be assistance forever. They should not be assistance forever. So if you are finding someone who really uh, likes you or finds uh, your ideas interesting in the room and so forth, why not just ask them, hey, do you mind? I, I just finished this thing. Obviously, it's got to be very specific, strategic, and targeted. It can't just be, hey, I've got this like first draft of this like crappy pilot I just wrote. It's got to be like, well, I know you're like really into like film noir, and I just so happen to have a very specific film noir pilot. It's very early on, but you mind reading it and secretly it's actually draft number 55 and you really it's like perfect basically <laughs> that's the moment where you're like hey do you mind reading it not necessarily for notes but just to sort of give them an idea of hey i'm like you i want to be you do you mind helping me out those are the opportunities where it's fine to be asking for a read in that capacity 
For sure. I, th- I don't think it hurts to ask at all, but also be prepared for them to say no. And that's fine too, because these are quite often very, very busy people who are not only working on this show, but maybe developing stuff outside of that. They have their own lives. They have other friends who they've known for longer, whose scripts they still have to read and all that kind of thing. So as long as you go into it with no expectation of that and being prepared to accept, no, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. I would love to help, but I can't. And not being offended by that or making that seem like they don't like you or whatever, they might just genuinely be too busy, that's okay. I've asked for stuff like that before, whether it's a coffee or a script read or something like that from more senior writers who I looked up to, and they've been honest and said, no, I'm sorry, I don't have the capacity for that right now. And and you just have to say, okay, great. I appreciate you responding. Right. And it's not a zero-sum game. Just because they said, no, sorry, I don't have the time right now, doesn't mean they'll always never have the time. It doesn't mean they'll never see you for drinks. It doesn't mean they'll never recommend you for a job. It doesn't mean that relationship is dead. It just means, hey, right now, now it's uh, this date on this moment. It's 4 p.m. It's in the middle of pilot season right now. So I'm really busy. Sorry, you do you, boo, but I can't. Exactly. And that's honestly a good test of whether you are taking this relationship seriously as a genuine relationship or whether you are trying to use them as a means to an end is if you continue to respectfully keep in contact with these people, keep that friendship and that relationship up. Because one day down the line, maybe they will do something to help you. Maybe they won't. Either way, if you ask for something and they say no, and then you just immediately forget about them and never talk to them again, except for to ask more favors of them the next time you talk to them, then that's a sign that maybe you're not doing it with the best of intentions. And that leads us to the final part of this episode and the last sort of value you can get out of your job. And that's simply what happens after that job. What can you get out of the job that you've had to move you forward? And the number one thing that I got to mention is obviously recommendation and references. Hopefully you put in those hours as a writer's assistant or a script coordinator or support staff. Maybe the show wrapped, maybe you go on hiatus, maybe the show gets canceled. Just because the show ended doesn't mean you have to lose track of all those people. And on top of that, you can also hopefully ask them for recommendation, especially if they're more senior, if uh, the show owner really values you, if the EPs and you have a good relationship. It's perfectly acceptable. And in fact, it's again, expected that as the show wraps, you're trying to find your next job, presumably. So go to them, say, hey, I really enjoyed my experience here. I really value my time as a scroll coordinator, as a writer's assistant, as a writer's PA. Do you know anyone who's looking for a writer's PA, writer's assistant, scroll coordinator, whatever it is, or let's say writer's PA, I would love to be getting that experience as a writer's assistant. Do you know anybody who's looking, et cetera, et cetera. Use that opportunity to maybe boost yourself up a notch if that's possible. So those are the ways you can get recommendations. Yeah, that's one of the great things and also the terrible things about working in production on shows. They are short-lived, especially if you don't get multiple seasons. Even if you do get multiple seasons, there is a hiatus. There's a gap between seasons that you need to fill with work so you can pay your rent. So that instability sucks, but also the great thing about it is that everyone that you worked with on that crew, not just the writers, it can be the people in the office, it can be the people on set, they are all going to splinter off and go on to another 20 different shows around the place and work with other people that they've worked with before. And when there are opportunities and they remember, hey, that writer's PA was really great, that office PA was really great, whatever it happened to be, then they can bring you in on that show. Or you can put it out there on Facebook or in the world or whatever, hey, I'm looking for a job. And they can be like, oh, I'm just starting on a new show. Let me pass along your recommendation. 
So in that way, you have a lot of people out there looking out for you when you do a good job and you make a good impression. And if you're not terrible and you're not a bad person, you will almost always find more work in production. That's just the nature of the beast. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about recommendation at the end of the day. And if you don't ask, you don't get. I think that's the big thing that people are afraid of, uh, especially when the show is wrapping. You don't have anything to lose from asking someone because what's the worst that can happen? They're going to fire you three days before you're done. You know, it's, it's you're going to use that relationship to build something more. And then you can follow up again, like a few months later, say, hey, I'm on this new job. What have you been up to? Or, hey, I'm still looking. Do you know anything? Or And so forth. Or, hey, let's catch up for drinks. I haven't seen you in a while. Those are the ways you can recommend. And similarly, on the flip side, use the relationships that you have as references. Hopefully, if you worked for a high enough or senior enough person, they can help you as a reference on your next job. Yeah, just make sure to keep in touch and nurture those relationships. And like we said before, when you're reaching out to someone, make sure it's not always with an ask, like genuinely be interested in what's going on with them and touch base every now and then so that the first time you talk to them after you worked on a show with them two years ago isn't to ask for a job. And it's important to not only be sort of like nurturing those relationships with the upper levels and the writers, you know, the people above you, but also the people at the same level as you and the people below you, because you never know, like my first job in LA, I was working with another assistant. She was a showrunner's assistant and I was an office PA. Now we're working on the same show again together later and she is a producer level writer and she has a million uh, overall deals in different places. And, but at that time she was just an assistant and we sort of kept that friendship in the meantime and now it's great that we get to work together and we're both sort of doing what we want to do. So don't just be short-sighted and look at the people above you to lift you up. There's all the, going to be people around you moving forward at the same pace or faster and uh, uh, it's awesome to want to know those people as well. Yeah, and to the idea, you got to pay it forward, especially as you're bumping up and leveling up from a writer's PA to writer's assistant to maybe scoop corner to staff writer and so forth, and maybe hopefully showrunner or EP one day. The reason why we're doing this episode and the reason why the Pay Up Hollywood movement exists and all those different things is to paid forward. We're in a position where now we're able to help people and give advice and share our experiences. Do the same. Help another fellow assistant trying to move up give the opportunity to someone like a writer's PA who you see something in them. Do anything you can to help your fellow person. We're all in this together, aren't we, Nick? Isn't this the beautiful love story of Hollywood? Absolutely. And yeah, it's very true. Even if you're not in strictly a position of power, helping people below you, even if you're just an assistant on the desk of an agent or working in development or something, when opportunities come along and you know that they might be good for other people that you've worked with, then you can let them know. You'd be like, hey, I heard about this project that needs a writer and you were a writer on this show that I was the PA on. Maybe you should get your agent to submit you for this. This would be really good. Or like, I can send you the book or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Just like be on the lookout and be trying to help people as much as possible. And then eventually, they'll want to help you. In Absolutely. This town is so toxic as it is. You don't have to add to the toxicity. If you know something, share it. There's nothing wrong with sharing your information, wanting to help someone. In French, we say, uh, which is like playing it solo by yourself. You're not helping anyone. You're just doing your minding your own business, which is fine on some level. But in this industry, it's all about relationships. It's all about connections. It's all about building one another up as opposed to tearing each other down. So that's your opportunity as a person. If you're listening to this episode, you can pay it forward by passing it on. There it is. <laughs> 
So what are our takeaways from this episode? Number one, know what you should expect at a base level as an assistant and the many ways that you can be taken advantage of from rates and guaranteed hours and mileage to work that is above and beyond your job description. Number two, you have the ability to negotiate your salary and other benefits to get a fair wage. Use your skills, experience, and knowledge to ask for what you are really worth. And number three, make the most of every job financially, creatively, and with your career and relationships. Think long-term beyond just your paycheck week to week. And do we have any resources for our listeners? Yeah, there's a couple of things that you can check out on this topic. The first one is the Pay Up Hollywood Town Hall with Liz Elper and Deirdre and uh, John August was there as well as some others. And they basically had this big, I think it's a couple hours long thing Mm -hmm. where they invited all the assistants in town to come and express their concerns over things like this, over pay rates, over guarantees, things that they're being taken advantage of and their mental health. It was really, really eye-opening and enlightening. And they're actually listening to the voices of these people who need help and the situation needs to be changed. So uh, we'll provide a link to that uh, where you can rewatch that through. And I think it will uh, be really interesting. Absolutely. The other big resource is knowledge is power, obviously. So there are plenty of anonymous salary documents and surveys, etc., online of wages to really know what other assistants at your level are getting. Uh, we'll also recommend all the different IIT minimum documents, especially the public documents like the writer's assistant and uh, school coordinator agreements with the IIT local 871 that you can find uh, online. All those documents so that you can really be prepared whether you're negotiating or understanding what's your fair rate and fair wage that you should be asking for. And last but not least, my dad actually wrote a course on negotiation to techniques, which he's actually planning on publishing in a, in a few months. So I will link it in the show notes when it is released and you can get an exclusive insight into my oh. dad's negotiating techniques. Is there a version in English as well? Or is he? English? My dad is British. Right. So okay, yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we can keep producing a great show for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get the show notes for this episode at pbtmlco slash 168. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Next week is the return of the paper tees. I think that's one of the new Star Wars movies. Uh, (laughs) And this will be the 2020 February session of paper tees. We're on a little hiatus for paper tees for a while, and now it's finally back, and we get to read more of your great teasers and give you feedback on air. My name is Alex Paper Tees. (laughs) Fade to black. And with that, we'll see you next week. See you then.